0: Everybody doing okay tonight? Pretty good. Okay. Well, I'll open us then in a in a prayer for this for the teaching, and uh, we will go into it tonight as we do always. Uh, I have a, a pretty full agenda tonight. We won't get through 15 as you would expect, uh, but uh, we'll get we'll get as far as God wanted us to. How's that? And uh, then we'll have a time for fellowship as always, and we'll go into uh, hopefully a little open time to que- uh, for questions and discussion. Uh, I think I've left enough for that tonight. Okay. Are we ready then? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, Your Word can come to us in different ways at different times in our walk. Sometimes, Father, the words are uh, so familiar. And uh, words we've said many times or heard many times. And uh, they are a comfort to us, Father, because of their familiarity. and, uh, And how much, Father, we... We recognize the the hand of the Creator in those words and the love of the Father. And uh, Father, I'm sure tonight as we go into your word again in Luke and in chapter 15 particularly, we're going to no doubt feel some of that familiarity, Father, and uh, return to that same place we've been before, seeing the, the love and grace and mercy that you so richly pour out on those who come to you in repentance. And we look forward to that tonight, Father. But uh, Father, we also would ask if it be your will that the Holy Spirit might bring us into the text tonight anew uh, with a fresh perspective, Father. Not not seeking new truth, not seeking some special knowledge, Father, but just understanding as deeply as you might allow through your spirit why you wrote these words so long ago and why you preserved them for us today. And and in the moment we find ourselves in our walk today and in the hearts that, that are gathered before you, I, I pray you would do a special work just to just to make it clear, Father, why you have gathered us here tonight and are ready to speak words to us through your servant, And I, uh, I would ask, Father, that uh, for those in here who have needs and intentions that may be addressed directly by tonight's teaching, that you might speak that to them as well, that, that they might know that your love extends not just to the big things, Father, to the work on the cross and to the work of those in ministry and to the major ways in which our faith serves our needs, but in even the smallest of things, Father, in the fact that they might have been gathered here before you, for a very small specific message that encourages or corrects or guides. Let us see that uh, work as well. And know that as sovereign God, you have control over even the smallest details. And we praise you for that. And so may the teaching, Father, be according to your will and by your Holy Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, as I said, we're going to begin chapter 15 of Luke, so if you have your Bible, please open up there. Uh, There are few, if any, chapters uh, of the Bible that are more familiar, I would think, to both uh, Christians and non-Christians alike than the chapter we're going to study tonight in Luke, chapter 15. And just as has been the case in previous chapters that we've taught through in this book in in, uh, the Gospel of Luke... Most of the content of this chapter is completely unique to Luke's gospel, which is really quite remarkable when you think about it for a minute. I want you to consider the power and the impact uh, of this chapter, and in particular of its hallmark feature, which is the parable of the prodigal son. It's so amazing to me to think that there are three other gospel writers. Two of the writers were apostles themselves, and the third was a protege, of the Apostle Peter, that being Mark. And these three writers overlooked in their own gospel accounts arguably the greatest of all the parables. And, and you have to consider for a moment that when you and I first heard the prodigal son parable, it made an immediate impact. It's had that effect universally over the history of the church, which is why it's so notable. In fact, I would imagine if you went to a Christian and you asked them to name one of Jesus's parables, how often would this parable be the first one that comes to mind? And as I said, even among non-Christians, it's probably the best known. And yet, nevertheless, these other gospel writers heard it in their day from Jesus himself and yet it neglected to make it into their gospel account. So, God in his wisdom left it to Luke to record this most significant of parables. A man who, by the way, Luke himself was a man who never met Christ personally in his flesh. He's the only Gentile Author in the New Testament. And maybe there's something to that fact alone. Maybe there is something to the fact that it was Luke and the unique quality of Luke as an author that led him to be the one to record what we're going to see here today, because it's in that perspective that Luke may have brought that the power of this parable is captured. And maybe just for the sake of the record, it's perhaps just the case that Luke was particularly interested in parables. You know, he recorded 20 parables that none of the other gospel writers captured that seemed to be one of his chief interests. But whatever the reason, as we study this remarkable chapter and as we start it tonight, we face, as a a student group, as, as students studying the Word, we face our own challenges here tonight as we go into this chapter, at least a couple that I've identified. First, we need to work to fit the events of chapter 15 into the larger canvas of Luke's Gospel. So many of us have learned the prodigal son as an entity to itself. We know the story, we might know many of the verses, we can probably summarize its meaning to some degree, but can you tell me what comes before it in chapter 14 or what comes after it in chapter 16, apart from what you may have learned in here already? Most students of the Bible can't. It doesn't exist in isolation, it wasn't written as a, uh, a little sidebar to the main story, It's part of the narrative. It comes at a point in time for a reason. It's there, in fact, for a reason. And so I think our first challenge is to um, go back into the text fresh and trying to look for why Luke recorded it. Why did one Gospel writer think it was important enough to include when the other three didn't? And obviously God is behind those decisions ultimately, but it still begs the question, why did God inspire Luke to put this in his Gospel? Second problem, or the second challenge we face, I think, is we need to find a way to come into the events of this chapter with a fresh perspective generally, and that's what I alluded to in the opening prayer, because for both teacher and student, it's difficult when you open up chapter 15 of Luke to go into material that you already know so well and see it in the way God expects you to see it as a student. So, we're going to take our time, we need to work to understand the circumstances and the events that are portrayed in these th- uh, three parables, and I should make that point as well. Chapter 15 is about three parables, not one. And, and as I go into the teaching, I, I want to give one other disclaimer, uh, and that is that you know, in my preparation to teach this parable, uh, I tried to come at the text in a fresh way, as I keep uh, mentioning. And and I look to the Holy Spirit as I do every time I go into preparation to guide me to the answers that I seek. And yet I, I also have to realize that few other places in Scripture have inspired as much good teaching perhaps as chapter 15 of Luke. So only a fool would ignore that body of teaching in their own preparation. So not wanting to be a fool, I uh, have consulted other teaching on this parable and probably did so to a far greater degree than I typically do. My, my typical preference when I study is not to go into other commentary or teaching uh, merely so that I don't color my own view of the text unnecessarily. I certainly like to know what others think, but my first approach is to see it afresh and go in with my own eyes and leave it at that. In this case, I, I did feel a burden to, to be more deliberate in looking at how other people have taught this parable. So I've done some of that. And I'll tell you as I go through the teaching today, I'm indebted to many of those other gifted teachers because I did receive help and there is going to be aspects of their own teaching inherent in my exposition of the text. I think that's just to be expected. But I also think I bring a fresh perspective and I think God showed me some things He wanted me to communicate. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring both. So that's my disclaimer. With that having been said, let's begin with the first few verses of chapter 15 of Luke. Luke 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, we'll stop there. and, And perhaps the first question we should ask as we approach the text is to consider how it connects with what came before it. Remember the first challenge I said we had? was in trying to build a contextual understanding of why chapter 15 exists. And actually, without going past verse 1, we get our answer. At least part of the answer. In verse 1 of chapter 15, we're told by Luke that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. Now, why is that significant? Well, I want you to consider what Luke had just finished detailing a little over a chapter ago when he reached the end of chapter 13... And he left the reader, as we studied back at that point, he left the reader with this stunning news. He told us back at the end of chapter 13 that Jesus had just been rejected formally by the very group he had been sent to liberate from their sin. And now, as a result of that rejection, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus declared to the nation of Israel that they were an evil generation and that they were due judgment and he would not return to them until they repented of that decision to reject him. A, a, a repentance that we know does not come in his earthly lifetime, on his first time on earth, and yet has not come even to this day. Knowing that that's happened at the end of chapter 13, I want you to add to that the last comment Jesus makes at the end of chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, we hear in verse 35 that any would-be disciple would have ears to hear his message. Now I want you to consider the contradiction that's apparent in the end of one chapter and the end of the immediately following chapter. At the end of chapter 13, no one's listening to him, at least not in any formal way. The nation of Israel as a whole has rejected him. Their leaders have rejected him. The crowds are largely um, fawning on him but not believing in him. And so he, rejects, he, he confirms their rejection. And yet at the end of chapter 14, a chapter devoted largely to the disciples, at least at the end, he says, if you have ears to hear, you'll hear my message. Well, how can that be? Who is he pitching this message to? Maybe that's a better way to put the question. If he has turned his back on the nation of Israel, who is he pitching his message to? Are there going to be those who hear him and believe his message, or is that completely now gone? Amidst the crowd and amidst the scoffers and amidst the hard-hearted Pharisees, is there yet still a receptive audience For the message of the gospel? Well, at the beginning of chapter 15, we get the answer. At the beginning of chapter 15, Luke, in an attempt to sort of explain how his ministry is going to continue from this point forward, he begins to explore who the audience was for Jesus' teaching at this point. And sure enough, it's being received, as we're told, by sinners and tax collectors. That is now effectively his receptive audience. And those spiritually needy that now assemble around him are the outcasts of Jewish society in every sense of the word. These are people who had no other hope in that society. They certainly, number one, did not hope in themselves. They had no expectation in their own walk of life that they would find a way out of the mire that they were in, in the hopeless condition they were in. They didn't have self-righteousness to fall back on. And keep in mind, I'm speaking here in spiritual terms. I'm not talking in material terms. I'm saying that if you were a, quote, sinner, in the eyes of the Pharisee, a tax collector, you walked around with a burden of guilt that if you were at least willing to acknowledge for a moment the fact of God and judgment, you had little reason to believe you would be on the winning end of any judgment process. You had no self-righteousness, no expectation of favor from God. And yet... That fact, that willingness on their part to acknowledge their sin, that willingness on their part to see themselves as having no other hope, was their advantage. It was the reason why they were a receptive audience to Jesus while others were not. It was the pious self-righteousness of the Pharisees and of the scribes and those like them in the crowd that left them unreceptive to Jesus' message. So Luke here in chapter 15 is going to present a case For why, number one, God would dare welcome from uh, this group of unworthy sinners, why he would dare welcome them into his family. Now you and I have grown up in a church where it's understood that the sinner who is repentant, acknowledging of their sin and turning to God is the one he receives. It seems logical. But it's not. There's no logic in that at all. God is welcoming into his family unworthy sinners and simultaneously he is hiding himself, he is turning his back on the privileged religious establishment of Israel. He says in verse 1, the sinners and the tax collectors, which by the way is just a general phrase to mean those lowly uh, in the society of Israel, they were receiving Jesus. And then in verse 2 he says the religious establishment is grumbling. The word there in the Greek for grumbling simply means murmuring among themselves. So there's a consultation going on where they're conferring with one another. You see what I'm saying? They're not necessarily going to the crowds with this statement. In fact, by this time the crowds are so big and so enthusiastic that they probably risk being uh, attacked by the crowd if they were to overtly go into the crowd and start to speak negatively against Jesus. They've lost that opportunity. That's why they're so worried about him. No, they're remembering among themselves. Do you understand they're truly confused? You've got to understand that the Pharisees' primary weapon against people who, who lived this open rebellion to the law was their ability to ostracize them from Jewish society. They could not take advantage of the law to punish them because of Roman rule over the nation of Israel. And the Romans did not allow the Pharisees and other religious leaders to summarily carry out justice on their own under the law. They had to get the approval of the Roman authorities to do that, which is why the chief priests had to take Jesus before Herod, before Pilate, and seek permission to put him to death. They could not do it on their own. And the only way they were able to achieve that success in the case of Jesus was to tie Jesus to some Roman offense, insurrection against the the rule of Caesar. To simply say he violated their law was not going to be sufficient for Pilate to take any action against the man. Because they didn't recognize Jewish law. So you're a Pharisee. Your job is to enforce the Jewish law and to conform people to it. And people who are openly living in rebellion to your authority and to the law, sinners, tax collectors, and the lot, what do you do with them? Well, you ostracize them. You make their life miserable. And you put pressure on the society to do the same. You make sure that at least those people get no reward for their behavior. And in this case, reward means acceptance, fellowship, into the rest of the culture. So they're ostracized. And here's Jesus, removing the stigma from these people. It says in the scripture, he received them, which literally means in the Greek, he accepted them. In fact, the word received there can even be translated cherished. So he cherished them. There's a degree of love there implicit in that statement. He ate with them, which in that culture was huge. That was a a very clear sign of fellowship that I accept you and we are, we are in some form in fellowship. Can you imagine how this treatment must have impacted that dispossessed group itself? I mean, I don't know if you've all ever had the experience in your own walk, I certainly hope you haven't, of, of being ostracized, of being on the outside looking in, of, of, of being in a situation where no one would talk to you, no one would do business with you, no one would, would, would uh, so much as even look at you if you passed them by. You were treated like Gentiles, you were like dogs. And someone of this significance, of, of, of this renown, sits down with you and eats with you. Do you understand the impact that would have had on that crowd? How, how that would have overwhelmed them with a the feeling of, why am I receiving such favored treatment when I don't deserve it? What did I do to deserve this? How could I explain the magnanimous gesture that this man is willing to, to, to uh, give to me? So as we begin chapter 15, the first thing I would say we're struck with is this obvious tension that exists between the acknowledged, repentant sinner and the unrepentant, self-righteous religious leader. And this tension is created, now here's the important part, one of many I hope, this tension is created by God you understand the tension was created? Before Jesus stepped into the world and sat down and ate with a sinner and a tax collector, all was right in the world. The Pharisees were on top where they thought they deserved to be and the sinners were getting no attention and they could understand it, if not like it. At least least it was rational, right? At least it made some sense. In the economy of human thought, they were getting what they deserved and the guys on top were earning it with their hard work and piousness. All was right. And then... Jesus shows up, a man you can't ignore, a man you can't explain away, not by what he's capable of doing and not by the power of his words. He doesn't show up and condemn the sinner. Isn't that what logic would dictate he should do? Now, as I said, our struggle here is that the knowledge of how God works in the hearts of an unbeliever and bringing them to faith through through a recognition of their sin and the repentance that follows and all that goes with it, that's so familiar to a believer today that it makes sense now. To those of us who have the recognition of our own unworthiness before God, to those of us who have been broken by the realization of how much our sin wounded God, knowing that there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself from that predicament, that you're stuck by your own sin. Once you really understand what that feels like and you turn to God's grace through Christ as the only solution, yeah, then you've got a big picture that helps explain what God's like and why He does what He does. But now... Take yourself and put yourself in the case of a Pharisee, in the, in the seat of a Pharisee if you can, just for a moment. These are men who worked like you don't even have a clue, like you would not even believe the effort these men put in on a daily basis to achieve the righteousness and the piousness that they wanted to portray in the way they ruled their life by the law. These are men who believe they deserved God's favor because they've earned it in hard work. They are the ones who were sure they were on the inside with God. And to this group, the idea of God extending grace to sinners made no sense at all. It, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. Their rule was upside down. It was backwards. It was unfair. It was ridiculous that they would see God work in such a way. So, in response to the religious leaders and their inability to comprehend God's grace and His mercy, Jesus tells three parables. And that's the second thing I want you to note here about chapter 15. Once Jesus begins to teach in verse 3, it's all teaching to the end of the chapter. It's Jesus and Jesus alone all the way to the end. Three parables back to back. And all three, therefore, are intended to address this same basic issue. The Pharisees' inability to comprehend how God could find joy in reaching out to the spiritually needy and broken while turning His back on the righteous. Not the truly righteous. Not the ones who are righteous by faith and therefore made whole by God's sacrifice on the cross. I'm talking about the self-righteous. Those who in their own mind had made themselves righteous and were deserving of God's favor. We're talking about the Pharisees. The men who had not come to Jesus on their knees, but rather expected Jesus to come to them. So the first parable sets the stage for all that follows. And we're going to look at the first two tonight and get into the, the, the main one, the prodigal son tonight. We won't go... They're very far, but we'll touch into it. And given how prominent the prodigal son is in our memory, you could even argue, why not just go straight to that parable? Why the need for the first two? And so we want to look for what each parable brings to our understanding of this fundamental question. I want you to note how Jesus begins his first parable. He says to the Pharisees, who, by the way, are the audience for these parables. That's the audience here. It's the Pharisees that he's talking to. He says, what man among you? As he begins. Or another way to say it is, which one of you? In other words, he essentially places the Pharisees in the place of God. You should be able to understand better why God is doing what he's doing in the lives of these sinners. And you can understand the way he acts if you first appreciate the way God sees these people. If they could stand in God's place and look down on sinners, they would see a shepherd and they would see a shepherd with a lost sheep. Now, firstly, it would have been easy, I think, for the Pharisees to identify with the life of a shepherd. They themselves would never have lowered themselves to, to take on that kind of a role. Shepherding was one of the lowest roles in society. Uh, but shepherds were common. They were arguably the most common profession of the day. And the other reason it would have been easy for them, perhaps, to identify with God in this position, at least to some extent, is that sheep are great examples of sinners. Some of you may have heard this teaching otherwise or others have mentioned this, but sheep are notoriously dim witted animals. And as a as a farm animal, they prefer to remain in flocks, but they do have a tendency sometimes to, you know, stray. And the way they do this is just typical for the type of animal they are. They they get their head down, they're eating and they're grazing, and they're grazing, and they'll look up and go, Oh, the herd's gone, where'd the herd go? They've wandered away by virtue of being distracted by something that's catching their attention and they just get narrow focus because the, the sheep tend to just graze as they walk, graze as they walk. So you'll lose them occasionally. They don't like it, but they will, it will happen to them. They get very frantic. In fact, the animals are known to get very nervous and very agitated if they're separated from the flock and they can run and run off cliffs and run into water and drown. They just, they're directionless at that point. And in thinking like a shepherd if they understand Jesus' setting here, the Pharisees are certainly going to appreciate why a shepherd would want to go rescue a lost sheep. There's nothing hard to understand in that. Uh, sheep had value to the shepherd, obviously. But there was also an attachment there. You know, Shepherds work with their flocks for an extended period of time. They often had years of experience with the same flock. They watched that flock very carefully for the reasons we just mentioned. And they almost always had to count them at night. That was one of the duties. Is as you brought them to rest for the night, you counted them because you could often lose one. If one was missing, you know, if you leave it out overnight, good chance you'll never get it back. So they would drop everything at that point and go get it and try to figure out where it had gone. And to do so, you had to leave the other sheep behind for a while. So his, his parable here is a very sensible, everyday experience kind of moment. So he's doing the best he can to take the Pharisees and give them a perspective similar to the one God has as he looks at sinners. And he uses sheep and he uses shepherds to teach the Pharisees that this is the relationship God has with his lost children. God sees value in his flock and he has love for them, which is evident enough as we read the parable. But it goes deeper than that. He knows them all personally, individually. Even while the sheep is lost, it's still a sheep. You, You notice that? It's not a goat. It's not a goat that turns into a sheep when it's found. It was a sheep. It always was a sheep. It originally was part of the flock. It got lost. God goes, gets it, and brings it back. It's now back in the fold. But it was always a sheep. It was always one of his 100 And until that one lost sheep is found, the shepherd's joy is incomplete. His joy is not complete. And so likewise, as long as one piece in God's mosaic of adopted and chosen children remains missing, God is relentless in pursuit of that missing piece until he has the whole flock. And when one is found, the parable tells us there is joy over the finding of that one. Now it's interesting. What is the joy over? Is the joy here on the fact that he now has a hundred sheep. In other words, is there joy here in the accumulation of sheep? No. He didn't steal somebody else's sheep. What he did was he restored to himself what was once lost, which implies he had a hundred at some point, he lost it, now it's come back. So the joy is in the reclaiming of something once lost, not in the mere accumulation. That's an important point we'll touch on more later. The finishing touch to this first parable is how he... Jesus refers to the other 99. It becomes clear that what he's saying here is that these 99, they have need of repentance, no doubt. They just aren't willing to acknowledge it. And therefore, there can be no joy, there is no celebration for God over 99 who are unwilling to understand their lost condition. Meanwhile, the one who is lost and found is worthy of joy. Now, if you're confused on that, hold on, because as the parables continue, it becomes increasingly evident that that's in fact the case, that he's saying this in a sly way, but the truth is, these 99 think they don't need repentance, and that's their problem. You know, if you were a Pharisee and you had written the script for how the Messiah would appear on earth, you know, they were all looking for the Messiah, or at least they said they were. I guarantee you that what they expected was, Jesus would show up and the first audience he would give is to the Pharisees, and he would fawn over them. And, And he would admire their piety. And he would congratulate them on how hard they worked to please God and keep the law. And how scrupulous they were. And how much they worked to get others to follow their lead. And to commend them for their strict lifestyle. And to commend the others or to condemn others for not doing what the Pharisees did. And to stand there with the Pharisees and shake his finger at the rest of of Israel. I guarantee you that's what the Pharisees expected the Messiah to do. They wanted credit for the hard work of being religious. And the Pharisees could understand what it meant to be a shepherd losing sheep, yes. But I don't think they could understand what Jesus was trying to tell them out of the first parable. I don't think as that first parable ended, they could make the connection initially to say, you're telling me that what God believes about these sinners is the same thing a shepherd believes when he looks at his lost sheep. I don't think they could make that connection at the end of the first parable. It's still too foreign. It still makes no sense. So Jesus takes it a step closer with the second parable. He moves a little closer to home And he changes some important details to build a picture. Luke 15, verse 8. He says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." He starts verse 8 again with a rhetorical question, much like he did the first parable, right? He, he expects them to agree with his statement. In this example, a woman loses a silver coin, or more specifically in the Greek, silver coin is translated from the word drachma. And a drachma was a Greek coin, to be specific, a fairly common Greek coin. It was worth about a day's wage in that day. Not, not a tremendous amount of money. I mean, not insubstantial, but we're not talking about uh, a denari, which is a month's wage. We're talking about something that was far less valuable. And to find the coin, the woman does something fairly extraordinary here. Number one, she lights a lamp. That's extraordinary? Yes, it is in one way. Um, a home in a Palestinian region traditionally did not have windows. The homes were typically um, made as square structures without any windows, perhaps just a single door, maybe doors into other rooms. So even in the broad daylight, you'd have to light a lamp in a home to see clearly, especially for this kind of a task. So this doesn't imply it was nighttime at all. It could have been daytime. In fact, there's really no reason to assume otherwise. It was probably a daytime event. And then we're told she sweeps the house carefully to find this coin, and, and that's going to make sense because the floors were probably dirt, hard-packed, probably littered with pebbles or leaves or other other things on the floor. You had to sweep the house if you were going to have any hope of finding this small, dim silver coin mixed in with all the other stuff in a home that was so poorly lit. So it's a real effort. But if the woman is going to spend that much time sweeping her whole house, sorting out what she finds, looking for that one lost coin, the whole time burning this lamp, this oil lamp in her house, she stood the risk of spending a significant portion of that coin's value in the cost of oil, looking for the coin. A coin that, yes, valuable, but not that valuable. You might rather just let it lay on the floor and eventually you might stumble across it, right? So the extraordinary effort this woman took to find the coin can't simply be explained, or at least it can't be explained entirely, just by the coin's intrinsic value. Because of her willingness to spend almost the same amount of money, perhaps, trying to find it. So, it means that this coin was meant more to her than simply a day's wage. In fact, in Palestine, it was common for women to wear a necklace of drachmas around their neck as their dowry or as their life savings. In that situation, particularly if we're talking about a dowry, that coin completed a collection. That coin had value as part of a collection. you know, One of ten, where each one had significant worth in that collection. It's a case of a whole being worth more than the sum of the parts to that woman. So as long as one was missing, she didn't have her dowry. As long as that one was missing, she, she had lost something that was valuable as a set. Like, like if, if you take a coin out of a mint set, that coin in the mint set means an awful lot more in value than it does simply on its face value if you take it out. I'm reminded of a story when I was growing up. My grandparents used to collect coins. And uh, I didn't really have any appreciation for coin collecting at the time. And I was staying with them at one time in the summer at their home. And, you know, if you're a a preteen boy with nothing to do in a small town in Texas in the summertime, you get into things. And uh, I opened up a drawer one time in the bedroom for no particular reason. And I saw this big collection of coins and bags and boxes. I thought this was interesting. And it was very convenient because I just happened to be a few quarters short of what I needed to uh, go off and and buy something I wanted while I was there. I figured, you know, I I can always replace the money later. It's just quarters. So I I spent a couple of quarters that apparently were much more valuable than I realized because when my grandfather found out, uh, it was not a very good vacation from that point forward. (laughs) And, you know, it goes to the point that it wasn't the 25 cents or 50 cents or whatever it was. I think they might have been silver dollars, actually, at the time. It wasn't the value of the coin, of course. It was their value in his collection that mattered to him. And it's in that sense that this woman is concerned over the loss of her drachma. And when the missing pieces in God's family are found, his collection is complete, so to speak. Or in the time we live today, his collection is being made whole, one sinner at a time. And when the missing piece is found, God's joy is made that much more complete until the day appointed when his joy is complete in that finding process. So in both parables, the catalyst for joy in heaven is the sinner's repentance and its opportunity for God to complete his family. The catalyst is repentance, which then leads God to joy over the reclaiming of something he has lost. Now take that back to the moment that the Pharisees are in. The Pharisees are thinking in a completely different kind of economy the pharisees are thinking from the standpoint of wages earned that god is in some sense paymaster of the universe and obligated to pay according to what we've earned and so in their vision of things they've earned a certain amount of righteousness and favor in god or favor from god because of their righteousness and their bank account is sitting fat in god's economy and god's bank while the sinner is destitute in terms of righteousness he he or she has nothing a value stored up in terms of their own righteous work. And what God is saying is you've got it completely backwards. You're not earning your way in. You're in, and I'm reclaiming you to what was lost. Now the difference in that is everything. Because if you're earning your way in, it's all about you. If you're a lost coin, it's about the owner coming to look for you. And if the, if the Pharisees could understand that from these parables, then they might have had a glimpse into why Jesus had said, you come to me in order to know the Father, and yet they were waiting for Jesus to come to them. And there's some interesting parallels between these parables that help, I think, build this case even further. In both parables, for example, the one seeking is himself or herself a lowly member of Jewish society. You notice the shepherds were seeking in the first parable, and a shepherd was, I think, just short of sinners and tax collectors. They were the lowest members of Jewish society. In fact, and that's not just true in the Jewish society, by the way, That was true in most Middle Eastern cultures, generally speaking. And if you notice from the story in Genesis, that Joseph goes out of his way to tell Pharaoh that his family are shepherds because he knows it will have the effect of getting him what he wanted, which is separation and a dedicated land for his family uh, away from the rest of the nation of Egypt. So it's not just a Jewish thing to to dislike shepherds. That was a cultural uh, view that permeated that whole part of the world. Second parable. The one seeking is a woman. Above shepherds, you have women, basically. They were, in that culture, they were seen as having little or no value apart from what they had through their husband. So, And, of course, you know, that's not to endorse it today. It's simply to recognize the culture as it was then. And that being the case, a woman would have been another example to use in a parable to illustrate the lowliness of the seeker. In light of how we are looking at Jesus' role in life In that day, a lowly itinerant preacher from Nazareth, the lowest of all towns in the nation of Israel, it makes sense to draw that comparison. Another comparison you can make, sheep and shepherds and flocks, that was a common picture God uses in Scripture for the nation of Israel. Him being the shepherd, the good shepherd, them being a flock, them being sheep, a sinner is a sheep gone astray. That was a very common way of God expressing His relationship to the nation of Israel. And then we have in the second parable Greek coins which would seem to suggest Gentiles. So in the two parables he has a, apparently a way of representing both groups as being lost and collected back to him. Could, could they appreciate the shepherd's happiness at having found the sheep? Sure. Could they appreciate the woman's happiness at having found her coin? Absolutely. But could they ever understand how God finds joy in restoring a desperate sinner to fellowship in his family? I don't know that they could. I don't know that Jesus expected them to. So without missing a beat, he tells one more parable. The prodigal son. And as we begin this parable today and and begin it without finishing it, of course, I want to draw your attention to something you may have missed in all the times in the past you've read this parable, perhaps. This parable is misnamed. And it's misnamed because it's not a parable about a son at all. It's a parable about two sons. I want you to look at verse 11. The parable about two sons. Luke 15, or chapter 15, verse 11 says, And he said, A man had two sons. And then in verse 12, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. This is a story about a man, the father, the father of a wealthy estate, and his two sons. And the story is usually called the prodigal son because the the, the protagonist in this story is the son who squanders his inheritance and is ultimately restored. In fact, the word prodigal means extravagantly wasteful. Extravagantly wasteful. So its focus is on that son. But that name ignores, that name of the parable, the prodigal son, it ignores the antagonist of the story. It ignores the other son, the righteous son, or maybe you want to call him the dutiful son or the dutiful one. And in fact, I like to do this sometimes because it helps keep my perspective. If you count the verses in the story devoted to each son, the prodigal son's story is about 13 verses, but the older son takes up 8. Not a perfect division, but it certainly emphasizes the fact that we have two sons in view here, not just one. So, going to the story, the first son, as you know very well, decides to ask his father for a share of the inheritance. By inheritance, what the son here literally means, or what the story would have to mean is, The son's portion of all that the father owns in life. That's what we mean by inheritance here. Some of you may have, for example, um, money set aside that you in your life have said, this is money that I intend to leave to my children. But if your child came to you today and said, I want my portion of the inheritance, and you were inclined to give it to them, my guess is you wouldn't sell your house and give them half of that money. My guess is you wouldn't sell them your property, your cars, your clothes, your pots and pans, and give them half of that money. At best, you'd give them half or whatever portion of the inheritance you've set aside in liquid form, in cash form. That's more often what you would think. Now, certainly if you died and you had an estate and that was liquidated, yes, you could see it at that point being liquidated, turned into cash, and divided. But you certainly wouldn't agree to those terms while you're still living, would you? The portion of the father's estate that legally would pass to the son upon his death is what he's asking for while his father is still alive. And under Jewish law, the older son in a family that had more than one son was entitled to double portion of the inheritance. Many of you probably know that, have heard that. So, in, in double here means a double portion relative to what the other siblings would get. So, in a case of two sons, you're talking about one son getting two-thirds and the other son getting a third. So, as a younger son, this prodigal son, as we call him, would have been expecting one-third of that estate. So, this is a, an incredibly remarkable request, an incredibly audacious request. Not simply because he's asking for the money early, but because of what it meant in that culture. He just said to the father, You are dead to me. It's a completely selfish and self centered act. And more than that, it shows no regard for the interests or wishes of the father. It is utterly disrespectful, utterly shameful. And since the father's wealth was wrapped up in his way of life, remember this is a day and age where wealth was working wealth. That you didn't have idle wealth. I don't know that there was such a thing in that culture in that day. The father's wealth was his farmland and was his animals and livestock. It was his servants. It was the home and the barn and the storage that he had for his grain. It was the tools and the implements that went into that. There was no... You know, there wasn't a DVD player and a big screen TV that he could sell and turn into quick cash, right? There was no equivalent. There might have been alabaster jars of perfume, but there really wasn't a lot of stuff in that day and age that you could say was stored wealth that was idle, that could easily be turned, you know, go to a pawn shop and turn it into cash. Anything he would do to turn his assets into cash meant diminishing his ability to conduct his own business and thereby earning living. So it would be like me saying to you, quit your job and give me half of your 401k, lose, that, lose control over your assets. So this son's statement had another effect, another meaning to the father. It meant, I have no interest in your business because naturally the son's inheritance would have included the business. The son, if the father had died, would not have liquidated the father's assets because he'd have no way to earn new wealth. He would have naturally continued in the business of the father using those assets to build, again, more wealth for himself. That's what would have been expected. So he's communicating not just that his father is dead to him and that he is selfishly wanting that asset early, but he's saying to the father, I want no part of your business either, of your name, of your reputation. I want a complete disassociation with you. You are as dead to me. And this request is so brash and and it's so unprecedented that the only thing that I think could possibly have shocked Jesus' audience more then hearing of this demand in the first place was to hear the father's response. And in response to that completely irrational, unreasonable demand, the father agrees. Now, what the father agrees to here is is striking, because you have to consider what the father had to do in order to to meet the request in that day and age. First of all, he's agreeing for the full separation that the son wants. And the story implies that, and I like this detail that I, I think we need to focus on as we go by in passing, That without the father's consent, if the father had said no, then the son's fall into misery, his descent into debauchery, could never have happened. If the father had not consented, the rest of the story doesn't take place. That would have meant, though, that this son would have remained behind in the family, much like the older son who never asked for this privilege, but if he had done that, I want you to consider for a moment what kind of relationship the father would have had with that son, who had not been allowed to leave. He would have been there in body, but I don't think he would have been there in spirit. And the father would have had him by his side, but he wouldn't have had a relationship. He would have had him working, but he wouldn't have had a loving opportunity to know the son better. And the whole time I believe that son would have resented the father's control. Don't you agree? Now, what if the father had simply taken the other option? There's really three options. One would is consenting, like the father did, but one was to say no. The other option would have been to just kick the son out penniless. To say, look, you are an uh, ungrateful, spoiled, shameful son. I'll have nothing to do with you. You're not only gone and dead to me, but you're gone without anything. Utterly penniless. So the son would have left destitute from the start. But of course, if he had done that, from that point f- forward, the, father, the, the son would have had the father to blame for his pitiful condition. Or at least he could have used the father's decision as his excuse for why his life was so miserable. The father did the one thing, and I would argue the only thing he could do in light of that request, if he truly wanted to hold a chance for preserving that relationship. The only hope he had for truly preserving a meaningful relationship, I'm not talking about just the the fact of having the son around. I'm talking about a true loving relationship where the father's love for the son was met with equal strength by the son's love for the father. The only possible way that could happen, given that the insurrection has already happened in the form of this request, his only hope was to say yes and then look for the opportunity for the son's senses to come back, for him to recognize his own mistake. To stop him or to strike him down would not have gained what the father truly wanted, which was the relationship And so he gave the son the freedom he demanded. Now we need to understand as we finish on this section for tonight, I want you to understand what had to have been involved for the father to actually divide the inheritance in the way the son demanded. Remember, the inheritance was the family's wealth. It was physical in nature. Very little of it, if any, would have been held in any kind of monetary form, like coins of any kind. So that meant the home, the land the farm buildings, the equipment, the slaves, the servants, the animals, everything the father owned at that point. I mean, if he's truly going to give him his portion of the inheritance, he can't hold anything back. Everything the father had in his ownership had to be monetized, had to be liquidated. So the father, if he's going to truly honor this request, has to liquidate the family assets. Now, in that day... The monetary system of Jesus' day was as sophisticated as ours is today, save the the electronic commerce that we take for granted. That's about the only distinction I would make. Apart from that, it was just as sophisticated. So just as we would do today, in that day, someone could actually sell a future interest in something of value. So what the father would have had to do, because we know the father didn't actually lose control of the farm. There's something for the son to come back to, remember, at the end of the story. So he doesn't actually lose physical control over his assets, but he had to have found some way to liquidate them. So what he would have done more than likely is he would have found buyers willing to purchase the rights to the family property, to the family wealth, to receive that property upon the death of the father. It's a future interest, basically. The family would receive payment today. They'd receive the value of the property today and they would be able to hold on to the property until the father's death. But at the point of the father's death, the new owner would take possession of that land. But because it was a future interest... It meant that the inheritance had to be sold at a discount. If you understand how money works, if I give you your money early on a future delivery, you discount its value, in part because of the fact that you now can earn interest on that money and the owner of that money loses their interest. So when you buy a future interest in something, it has to be sold at a discount. A classic example is a savings bond. You pay $50 for a $100 savings bond now, and in 30 years you have something worth the full amount of the face value of that bond. It's a similar concept. So, so the... Farmer, the, 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 the landowner, the father could have gone to someone and said, I'll sell you all that I have now for this much money, knowing that its real worth was this much. But at least he could liquidate it quickly in that way. And you all know if you've ever had to sell something quickly, your ability to bargain on price is very low, right? So the likelihood is the father took a loss, a significant loss on the value of his property and he liquidated it. He now is a tenant of the land that he used to own. You know, the picture drawn in the parable of the prodigal son is a little different than the picture drawn in chapter 3 of, of Genesis. But the basic understanding of what's happening is exactly the same. Adam said, I wish you were as dead to me. I want no control. I want no authority over me. I want complete freedom to do as I will. And in the, in the act that he took in the garden, he was separating himself from his father's authority in much the same way that this prodigal son is doing here. Now, what could God have done in response to what Adam did? Well, number one, he could have restricted Adam's ability to even break free. He could have eliminated that tree from the garden. Or he could have put a fence around it. Or he could have made the branches so high up the trunk that there was no way Adam could reach the, uh, the fruit that was hanging on it. See my point? He could have kept Adam from being able to leave. But if Adam would have been unable to accomplish his desires, his desires would have remained nonetheless. And the father would have still lost that loving relationship he desired. Because remember, sin begins in the heart, not with an action. The action simply became the evidence of what was in the heart. Or he could have reacted in anger. When Adam took the fruit and ate, what could God have done in the moment? For that act of disrespect and disobedience, he could have given Adam what he deserved for his behavior right then and there. Of course, if he had done that, Adam would have immediately been judged for his sin and perished and all mankind with him. And again, the father would have lost the loving relationship he created man for in the first place. So what are God's options in the garden? A selfish, self-centered son who demands separation and independence. And God, knowing what damage that will bring him, nevertheless says, if I hold you back, I have no relationship. If I destroy you, I have no relationship, so I let you go. I give you the freedom to pull that fruit down from the tree. In fact, I put a tree in the garden so that we can test your heart. Let's go to prayer and we'll go into time of fellowship. Father, uh, if you would speak to our hearts even now for any who may hear these words and be considering how they may never have turned back, I pray, Father, that uh, what the Word has done for so many before would do again for those who hear these words, that they might understand, Father, that you desire to collect to you those who know their sinfulness, who recognize that like Adam, they have turned astray and they have done no good, that they are not pleasing in your sight, and they are due the penalty that they have earned. But in grace, Father, you desire the relationship more than you desire to merit judgment, and so you offer an opportunity. I pray, Father, those who would understand that maybe for the first time would open their hearts to you and would turn toward you and would confess Christ and would understand that He alone is the way to the Father. And uh, may these words bring one more sheep home. And tonight, Father, I thank you for the Uh, patience and the diligence of the students as they listen to a teaching that, Father, I pray, was according to your will. And in the work you intend to do in their hearts, I pray they'd be better prepared for it because of their attention to your word. May we go to fellowship, Lord, with the Holy Spirit guiding our speech and our love for one another. And if it be your will, may we return next week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.